Lifeguards 10-8 is a privately produced podcast. Any controversial statements, stances, or opinions from their producers or their guests are strictly their own and are not meant to be a representation of the public safety service or municipality that employs them. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Lifeguards 10-8, a podcast focused on the tradecraft of professional open water lifesaving, covering everything from the latest procedures and national standards to the traditions and history of America's lifeguard services. I'm Mike Hudson, producer and host. This is an in-service training brief. In this episode, BLS airway adjunct and how they're used during drowning resuscitation and airway management procedures. But first, I need to introduce my friend, colleague, and one hell of a paramedic, Brian Hoss-Hess. All right, brother. Happy Doing New well. Year. Happy New Year to you, too. Tell the listeners a little bit about yourself before we get going so they know that you at least have some kind of juice talking about <laughs> the subjects that we talk about on these training meetings. Some juice. The kind of juice. Um, yeah, you got the so juice, bro? I do have juice. I've got, <laughs> I've got some juice. So, yeah, no, I've been doing the paramedic thing, EMS in general, pre-hospital medicine for probably 35, 36 years. Been a medic 30 of those years. Currently working in rural Colorado. Spent a lot of my career the last 20 years plus. So the balance of my career has been in the rural environment. Don't forget Shark, Shark Week, right? Week. Yeah, you name it. We're doing we're doing some crazy stuff. So, been overseas, South Pacific, doing some austere environment kind of stuff, done flight. Uh, You've placed a couple airways in the past, right? Just a couple? I think I think last count of like <laughs> three or four. So yeah. Okay. I think you have uh, the qualifications to uh, discuss the subject we're going to discuss. So cool. without further ado, I think we're going to jump right into it. All right. Sounds good. Hoss, you and I have been paramedics for quite a long time, and we have seen our fair share of proper and improper use of basic life support airways, have we not? Oh, yes. Yep. Can I get an amen? I'm kidding. Amen. So, <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about those two airways, how important they are, how important they are during a resuscitation effort, and the proper way to use them, as well as the indications, contraindications. I think the first thing is to remember that they're adjunct. So you provide the airway and then the adjunct assists you in maintaining that airway. And that's something that's often forgotten and it's not put it in and forget it kind of thing. The, the two airway maneuvers that we're talking about are obviously the head tilt chin lift or the jaw thrust procedure. The right. jaw thrust is really taking the back seat, man, hasn't it? Yeah, because right? we've got blindly inserted airway devices. And I think that the jaw thrust and the head tilt are still huge. Like it's the number one go-to. I still go to it. And maybe it was because of the way I was trained. When we talk about the jaw thrust too, it's important to remember that less than 0.9% of drowning victims have cervical spine injury. When before paramedics and EMTs used to arbitrarily immobilize their C-spine, right? And if they were found unconscious on the surface, it was automatically assumed that they might have a cervical spine injury. They dove in and created damage to their spine. The assumption was that that's what had happened. All right, let's talk about BLS airway. The OPA stands for oropharyngeal airway, NPA stands for nasal pharyngeal airway. Those are the two most common airways. Tell me everything you know, Brian. Um, different sizes. One size does not fit all. The oral pharyngeal is often the first one that we go to. The nasal pharyngeal is often decried and often not utilized because of the comfortability with it, whereas it's actually the most tolerated. I've seen patients looking at me and talking to me around the nasal pharyngeal airway when that would never happen with an oral pharyngeal airway. The thing that goes along with both of them that is synonymous with training, making sure that you know inside, upside, downside, how to measure and insert those devices and what their indications and contraindications are. So let's talk indications for an oral pharyngeal airway. Oral pharyngeal airway, the indications are going to be anybody that is unable to protect their own airway. Can you swallow your tongue? I know you can't, and I don't even know why I'm asking that question. It's impossible to swallow your tongue. 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, some kind of trauma has occurred for you to be able to swallow your... I think what the colloquialism refers to the tongue occluding the airway, and that is absolutely possible. And it's actually more probable with an incorrectly inserted OPA is to manually right. displace the tongue anteriorly and superiorly. Displace the tongue from the posterior or pharynx, right? Correct. No, you right. can't, Forrest. Can't swallow your tongue. Now, right. that being said, your tongue can block your airway. More specifically, oh, it can block it's your posterior one, pharynx. Yeah, it's the number one non-food item to block your airway. Does the nasopharyngeal airway have the same indications, or does it have a more broad... It has the same indications with absence of concern for the gag reflex and the ability to swallow. That can be that can be actually... The nasopharyngeal can be placed in situations where the oropharyngeal cannot be placed. The specific gag reflex intact is the, is the big one. Does it really mean maintain the airway well what do you think it does Mike? <laughs> well you know back in the day if you would ask me as a rookie paramedic it was used as an airway adjunct and as a diagnostic tool you're not even going to put plastic in there if they fail that diagnostic right. you need to be sure of your scope of practice and you need to be sure of your protocol explain to me exactly what the nasopharyngeal airway does the oropharyngeal it doesn't manually displace the tongue to the anterior and superior it actually just allows the tongue to kind of mold around it provides oxygenation and ventilation to oropharynx itself smaller Patients passage with, of air though yeah correct? yeah but still not inappropriate patients <laughs> with trysts from a neurologic injury Didn't we which just is where the oh that was christmas <laughs> no that's <laughs> christmas bro <laughs> that was different <laughs> but nasopharyngeal airway really does play a part in those patients that have deep neurologic injuries that cause the jaw to clamp down and not open up oh, so sure. a nasopharyngeal yeah. airway may be your only first of all means to ventilate and also suction in case they've got blood where trysmus yeah. comes from would be an obvious head injury, head and injury involved good. teeth Central neurological deficit where they're, you know, having partial seizures. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, I don't know, maybe you've experienced something different, but in my experience, the nasopharyngeal airway is tolerated way better in those patients who are right on the edge of needing airway support, not really protecting their own airway, but sort of protecting their own airway. Those patients where they absolutely are not going to tolerate an oral. Something I used in the Navy, dude. If the patient's blinking, then they're not going to take an oropharyngeal airway. And one step further than that is the way that I was, I thought was, I mean, if their eyes are closed and you tap them between their eyebrows and they wince or they blink, you know, they're, they kind of scrunch up their face at all, that proof positive that an oropharyngeal will not work. So what are your contraindications for a oral pharyngeal airway? Oral pharyngeal, absolute contraindication is going to be an intact gag reflex. Yep. That's one of those golden test questions too on the National Registry and every other right. medical-based training segment that deals with any kind of airway problem. Yeah. So it's always, and you I know. Think, you know, I mean, is it, worth, is it worth talking about the difference between absolutes and relatives? Right. The problem is though, and what everybody needs to remember is if you stick that oral pharyngeal airway in the patient that has a gag reflex and that gag reflex stimulates a vomiting response and that patient vomits emesis not only all over you You've made all it over work. your yeah. <laughs> and they're Multiple also you know, you've made it worse <laughs> there's a, they could aspirate something really important to mention is that there are studies that have shown many studies as a matter of fact 80 percent of fatal drownings on the post-mortem exam they find stomach contents and emesis in the patient's lungs so that means that they have aspirated their stomach contents into their lungs, probably from overzealous first responder ventilations and improper airway maneuvers.
contraindication for a nasal pharyngeal airway, there's a difference between a contraindication and a relative contraindication. And this applies to a nasal pharyngeal airway, I believe. Right. So you have absolute contraindication, which I mean in none shall pass, right? None shall pass. All joking aside, when we talk about indications and contraindications, we can't forget the subdivision of a contraindication, which would be relative versus absolute. With the nasal pharyngeal airway, I feel that there are contraindications, but there are more relative contraindications. Do you agree with that, Haas? Yes, okay. I would. Can you, what, what, how would you explain the difference between a relative contraindication versus an absolute? Absolute contraindication would be, like we just discussed with the oral pharyngeal airway, a gag reflex. Gag reflex. None shall pass. Absolutes, they're absolute. None shall pass. If so, if you do this particular thing, whether it be this medication or this skill or this procedure in this setting, it has been proven to be harmful and detrimental to the patient and should not be done. If it harms the patient, it's absolute. If it has the potential to harm the patient, right? So those are what they used to refer to those as class three or something like that. Known harm, right? There's known harm. So pay attention to that. And then relative contraindications are you have to use some judgment. And this is where it gets scary, especially for new guys. You have to use some clinical judgment. So let's say in the in the instance of these two airways. So I start to insert a nasal pharyngeal airway and I meet resistance that isn't easily overcome. That to me would be a time to maybe not continue. Now add to that the one that you're talking about, which is most commonly open facial fractures or what used to be referred to as mid-face fractures, which were Lafort. Uh, They were categorized as Lafort fractures. Um, Now they're just mid-face fractures and they grade them based on how far up the face and how much of the face. And the, the argument is that there is possibility of you intubating, meaning your plastic tube has entered the cranial vault. Discussion. <laughs> a lot of <laughs> a lot of discussion That's about pure it. poppycock. Right. It has never been done. You know, they refer to cranial intubation. The two times that it has been shown to happen, one was with a nasogastric tube, which is a long slender tube which could easily pass through placed postmortem. Us. The endotracheal tube was placed postmortem. The nasogastric tube was placed antemortem. So are you sure about that? Uh, I'm fairly sure, but I do know that I do know that the ET like to tube. I'd like, <laughs> I'd like to take that bet right. for one hundred dollars, right. please. Well, you'll have to come. You'll have to come out here to claim it um, if you find it. So, <laughs> but that's not to say that you can't cause injuries, which are fairly common with nasal. Um, so why do we use them though? What's our whole point of using these airways? Should I sit there? And, you know airway so this is yeah but i mean i mean the key here is that the person is incapable or having a very difficult time of maintaining the airway yeah right and so very little comes before that right so we still live by the abc rule i'm going to even add a little bit to that too not only does it provide you know i think probably better passage for ventilation we're not forcing you know ventilations in and squeezing the bed we can figure out if things are, are are going properly and if you have a good airway that's one less thing you have to worry about but another thing that we see with drowning patients is we have a high incidence of vomiting and emesis and fluid in the airways whether it be pulmonary edema or stomach contents we, so we have stuff that's constantly coming up especially with drowning victims so i think that those airways all also give us an ability to suction a patient without getting our catheter trapped against the tongue or we're able to see where yeah. we're going with our stuff. So especially the oral right. yeah, very. I mean, frequently, I mean, those devices have have passages typically built into them to be able to advance suction cath. Clearly, the nasopharyngeal has opening for it, but the 
oropharyngeals typically have a pathway so that you can advance a whistle tip catheter past that to be able to suck on. Or yeah, the old school uh, army OPAs had the big hole or right. in the middle of the combat ones that we right. used to get. Right? Non-occludable. Right. Yeah, non-occludable. non-occludable and you could stick a, there, a flexible right? so catheter down there. patient would could get trismus in the middle of your procedure because that's that's one of those things. That's why I said it's not a static environment. you got to remember that when you put that oropharyngeal airway in, you've now just helped create an airway. Oxygenation may actually increase them to the point where that patient that two minutes ago didn't have a gag reflex now suddenly starts retching or suddenly starts biting down on the block. Or could and happen that, with ROSC, right? With a, a, a V-fib arrest, right? Out of hospital absolutely. V-fib arrest, with that. So how do you know that the oral pharyngeal airway or either of those airways are placed correctly? Uh, the first step is to make sure that you measure them for your preferred method. Let's right? just assume so, after measuring. So how do we know they're placed correctly? What is the one assessment that we can use to know that those airways are placed correctly? Unobstructed airflow. Beautiful. You have a good air. Excellent. So ventil- and what- ventil- ventilation is, is going like it's supposed to. You're not meeting resistance. You don't see the tongue folded up in the back of the airway. You're not getting retching. Their shoulders aren't going up into that retching position. That and kind you're of not stuff. getting strider. And also, strider is one of the sounds that's associated with an upper airway partial upper airway obstruction, which either of those airways can produce if they're not measured correctly. Because if you put an adult airway in a pediatric patient, you're going to have some major problems. You'll cause trauma, you'll block the airway, and you cause could cause irreversible laryngospasm, which would actually close off the airway. Correct. Yeah. I mean, you got to remember that one size doesn't fit all with these. I know I said it earlier, but one size does not fit all. And they have these sizes the whole way down to neonates. I and mean, most agencies don't carry those. Most rescue services don't carry the little tiny ones. How do you know you've how do you know you've improperly placed an airway or the airway is the incorrect size what is that airway sound so gurgling sounds like sonorous respirations or snoring respirations you maybe push the tongue into there or it's not holding the tongue up out of the way like it's supposed to or the device just flat isn't working like it's supposed to. Uh, in the case of the nasopharyngeal you're probably not going to hear sonorous respiration just because it, it's not you're not typically forcing the tongue back into the oropharynx like you do with an oropharyngeal airway would you say that airway adjuncts are a relatively low risk, high benefit device? Yes. With the caveat that they must be trained with and refreshed pretty regularly. Skill-wise, you're talking about provider skill-wise placing them. Excellent. And do you see any drawbacks either of those airways? Hmm. Drawbacks. That you would warn warn a lifeguard to say, listen, this is what you need to look out for when you're using this airway. What would you say to the hint of a gag reflex. I mean, the, the oropharynx, I mean, those those two things are pretty innocuous. I mean, they, they, you'll be able to tell pretty quick if you're putting it in an, an, an oropharyngeal in a patient who can't tolerate it. They're going, they, the first sign is obviously their shoulders roll, right? So they look like they're getting ready to throw up. If you ignore that, it's to both of your detriment. You're probably going to get covered in some stuff and your patient's going to have an aspiration pneumonia, guaranteed. As far as like, are there any real bad things that go along with it? I think the biggest thing is this making sure to use the right side. Since we are speaking about indications and contraindications, those are also regional, local, county, facility, department, division, service specific. Once again, make sure that you check your local protocols, policies, and procedures. We are not the authority. We are only passing along information. Our website for the Lifeguards 10-8 podcast is pretty simple. Lifeguards 10-8 
lifeguards10-8.com. Once again, lifeguards10-8.com. And I want to stress the information that we put out on this podcast, whether it be a future one or a past one, this information is consistent and correlates with national standards, whether it be from the USLA, the NFPA, the American Heart Association, or the National EMS Scope. And with that, let's secure this in-service training brief with Brian Hoss-Hess. Summer is only about four and a half months away. So stay safe, stay healthy, back each other up. Education, prevention, rescue, resuscitate. Lifeguards 10-8, we're 10-7.